All right, church. Well, I'm excited to be back into our series on the book of Esther. Our series, Unexpected, Expected Deliverance. If you remember a couple weeks ago where we left off, God's people were facing annihilation. An irrevocable decree had been made saying they're going to be destroyed in the 12th month of the year. Esther, hence the name of the book Esther, is queen, and Mordecai, her relative, pleads with her. He says, please intercede with the king on our behalf. Nobody knows that Esther was a Jew. She's like, hey, I, uh, I don't know about going before the king. You know, going before the king without being invited could lead to death. But Mordecai says, no, God's going to deliver his people. Technically, he doesn't say God, but he says his people are going to be delivered. You need to be a part of it. She says, yes, I'll do it. And that's where we're going to be picking up the story today. We're going to see Esther taking that step of faith to work on behalf of God's people. But where we left off, we're kind of left with that question of how is God going to deliver and save his people? We know that he will, but how is he going to do it? So today is kind of the beginning of the end, where we get to see those wheels start turning where God is going to deliver his people. Today we're actually going to cover a little more than three chapters, okay? So we're going to spend a lot of time reading, not all at once, it's about seven minutes, I timed it. But it's because the the story is so fast-paced. The dialogue picks up. There's a ton of dialogue in this section. And the narrative pace just kind of rushes toward the end. And really, the main character today is Haman. You know, we've been introduced to him. He's the bad guy. And we see today his downfall. And it comes about quickly. And it's actually supposed to be really funny. Today, it's sad because a guy has a downfall. But it is also humorous. And he's Everything that happens to him is kind of like, look at this guy. Okay, so that's where we're going today. Haman, ultimately, as we look at him, serves as a warning against pride. He's a warning against pride. So as we look at the passage today, we're going to be seeing three clear truths about pride that God warns us with. Now, when I speak of pride, we could probably fit a lot of things into what we mean by pride. So I'm just going to give you a definition of pride right off here, uh, right, right up top. So here's what I, when I refer to pride, this is what I'm meaning. Seeking to place myself, whether that's my thoughts, my opinions, or my view of myself, seeking to place myself above God and others. So I'm not necessarily talking about, oh, I did a good job and I take pride in my work, although that can become overinflated and then fit into the category of pride I'm talking about. But I'm more talking about this idea that I need to be at the top. I think that's how the Bible speaks about pride. Pride is this sense of I am going to be defining right and wrong. This is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't accept what God said is right and wrong, and they basically said, we're going to define right and wrong. That's pride. It's us putting ourselves above God. Pride is essentially idolatry of self. It's idolatry of self. You can really boil pretty much any sin down to pride or idolatry of self. Pride is, in its essence, opposition to God. It's saying, God, you don't belong at the top, I do. 
Okay? So as we walk through the passage today, we're going to be seeing that pride is a trap that delivers the opposite of what it promises. So let me pray, and we'll get into the text. Father, help us to have ears to hear this morning and tender hearts that are ready to receive what you have for us. May you be glorified. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there's several scenes that we're going to see today, but the first one, uh, the first one really introduces us to the conflict that happens with Haman. So here we go. We're starting in chapter 5, verse 1. Here's what the narrator says. Remember, Esther kind of told Mordecai and the Jews to go fast on her behalf. So here we go, verse 1. On the third day, that is the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And, she, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So we'll pause there for a minute, and we see Esther's kind of teasing the king a little bit, or kind of buttering him up, preparing him with multiple feasts. She invites him to the first feast, and he's like, okay, so what do you want? Hey, come to the next feast that I'm going to have for you. Then I'll let you know. We see here, when Esther enters into the throne room, she wins favor from the king. We've seen that before. It's not this passive, like, oh, you know, I'm just kind of going with the flow. But Esther has actively done something. She wins favor. But here, at at this point in the story, we still don't have any resolution. No resolution to how God's people will be rescued. No resolution. We're kind of left hanging. So we're going to pick up the second scene here in a minute. But uh, before we read, I want to give you our first point so you can be paying attention to it. It's this. Pride leaves us unsatisfied with what we have. Pride leaves, leaves us unsatisfied with what we have. All right, you'll get to see this again. So if you didn't get the blanks, that's okay. We'll, we'll see it again in a minute. Starting in verse 9. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, 
even Queen Esther. Let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high, that's about seventy-five feet, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Okay, let me recap my definition of pride. It's seeking to place myself above God and others. We see this very clearly in the life of Haman. Haman wants everyone to bow down to him. Our pride, Haman's pride, is ultimately opposition to God because it is demanding others give us what only God deserves. Haman is in a spot where he has riches, many sons, which was an amazing thing in that culture. He's the highest official in all the land. He has the ear of the king. And as he mentions, like, hey, the wife of the king, I mean, the queen, she, she invited me, me, to hang out with, with my bro, Ahasuerus, the king. All right, I'm excited. But none of that is enough. Pride never has enough. It always demands more. Because pride wants to be like God who has everything. And so when we look around, there's always going to be someone who has more, God himself. So it is always hungry for more. But we are finite. We aren't designed to have everything. But Haman wants everything and is upset because Mordecai the Jew has not been brought low. He won't bow. Not only that, Mordecai isn't dead. He wants him dead. And this is ironic because if you recall, all the Jews are scheduled to be wiped out in the 12th month. But Haman is like, well, he won't bow now, and so uh, I just need him to go ahead and be dead. Remember in verse 13, all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. That's the one thing that Haman doesn't have, and he's never ever going to get Mordecai's worship. And so Haman listens to his wife's suggestion where the, his wife tells the king to execute him. Remember, Ahasuerus is easily influenced. He does whatever people suggest to him. So the wife says, create this 75-foot pole so that we can kill him. Now, here when it talks about the gallows, they, they didn't hang people in the same way we think of it with like a noose. Instead, it's someone being impaled on a stake and being lifted up in the air. It's, it's that kind of thing. And that was a, a degrading and humiliating death. And so his wife, which by the way, remember back in the beginning of the book, there was this thing where the wives were supposed to listen to the husbands according to this foolish decree that the, the king made. And so here the author's kind of like saying, ha-ha, like they aren't even doing what they said they were going to do. Another kind of small little ironic piece of humor. So pride is always demanding more. It's never satisfied. But I want us to spend a quick moment asking, how are we proud? Because you might look at your life and think, well, I'm not like Haman. I don't have all of these things. and I'm not a particularly proud person. I try to keep, live a quiet life. But still, 
pride is in all of our hearts. There is not one of us here today that can't look at this and realize, oh, I need to repent of pride in my life. And God in His mercy is showing us our pride. Here's a couple of, of, of ways. One, which is maybe obvious, but then there's a couple that are maybe less, uh, less so. The first one is the perspective of my life is my life. I don't have any authorities over me. I don't need to submit to anyone. Specifically, are you under the authority of a church? Are you under the authority of this church? Are you under the authority of another church? Have you come and placed yourself and in, under them and invited them to speak into your life? I don't mean just showing up on Sunday and then living your life as you please the rest of your week, but instead coming and making a commitment and saying, I want you to correct me and to speak truth. Not only the church, but the Word. Opening up the Word daily and saying, Lord, correct me. Don't just show me what I need to do and, uh, rightly, but help me to see you clearly so that I can walk with you. We need to come under authority. We were created to be under authority. And pride says, I don't need authority. Well, you aren't always right. And so there is going to be a time where you will need authority because you don't know everything. And again, pride leaves us unsatisfied. And if there's not an authority in your life, you will just be continually resting on your own understandings. And that will leave you unsatisfied and ultimately unjoyful, unhappy, unfulfilled. Okay, so having my life be my life. The second idea is I need that person's or those people's praise. I need their praise. I won't be satisfied unless that person praises me. That was Haman's problem. And a lot of us have that problem where maybe we're very agreeable people because we want the praise of others. That's pride because that's saying, I need this. I deserve this. But God says to us, no, you need to praise and fear me, not praise and fear other people. Praise and fear the God who created you. We don't need to receive praise, we need to give praise. Seeking to receive praise will leave us unsatisfied because we'll never have enough. Because we're never going to get the praise that God deserves, and so there's always going to be another rung on that ladder to climb. Instead, when we seek to praise and fear God, that is where satisfaction comes from. All right, and thirdly, so my life is my life, I must have this person's praise, and then thirdly, this circumstance shouldn't happen to me. Saying or believing that is actually pride. I'll give you an example from my own life. Uh, last night, discovered that uh, in our car, the little battery light lit up and the car was making kind of a little bit of a noise, which generally means your alternator is on the fritz. And so that happened and I thought, oh Lord, why me? And my response was not, oh, I live in a broken world and Lord, help me to trust you in the midst of car troubles. But it was, Lord, I don't deserve this. This shouldn't happen to me. I shouldn't have a van that has problems and I hate. So instead, I should have said, Lord, you are worthy of my worship, and I humbly take whatever comes my way. And yes, it may be inconvenient, but you're teaching me something through all of this. This shouldn't happen to me is pride. And if I have that perspective going on around the world, I will always be unsatisfied. Always. All right, pride leaves us unsatisfied with what we have, unsatisfied with what 
we have. Okay, our second point for today, second warning that we're going to see from Haman's life, is that pride is utterly foolish because it seeks to stop the unstoppable. Utterly foolish because it seeks to stop the unstoppable. What Haman is doing is not going to work. We know that, but it's utterly foolish. So let's see what happens in Haman's life. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. Church, this is hilarious. I mean, like, what is, what's happening in the life of Haman? I mean, it's just pathetic. You don't really feel bad for the guy because he's like the villain, but at the same time, you just laugh. You laugh. It's what's happening. The irony is rich. And here in this section, this scene that we just read, God is working. We see God working through Ahasuerus not being able to sleep. Just this night, he happens to not be able to sleep. Secondly, he decides to read. Now remember, this is the king who has like a bunch of concubines, and he decides to read. Okay? Not only that, what does he decide to read? He reads the exact passage that talks about Mordecai rescuing him. Not only that, Haman is so eager to do away with Mordecai, the guy who rescued the king that the king just learned about, that he's there at just the right time, early in the morning, to make sure that Mordecai is dealt with. All of these things come together. Coincidence? I think not. The Lord is clearly working. God is unstoppable. So, let's keep going. Verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, 
If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So here we have him in his house a second time, talking with his friends. By the way, the friends this time are described as wise men, and notice what they say this time around, and his wife, what they, what they say, that you will surely fall before him. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will surely fall. It's, it's an emphasis in the Hebrew. It's literally like they're a falling you will fall. You will surely fall. Why? Because you are trying to stop an unstoppable force. And that is what pride does. Pride looks at what is owed to God and says, that belongs to me. God, you need to stop what you are doing. It won't work. We were created to be representatives of God. That's our purpose. We were created in the image of God. I've talked about that before, how we are made in the image of God and what that means. So we're supposed to submit to Him. But pride, doing our own thing, feels pretty good. But ultimately, we're not designed to be all about ourselves. We're not designed to define right and wrong. We're not designed to be looking to the interests of ourselves, but we're designed to be looking to the interests of others. And going against God's design is foolish because God created us and the world to work a particular way. And when we look at that and we say, well, me as a finite creature, God, yes, you have the power to uphold everything by just speaking and uh, you sustain it all, but. Uh, No, I'm going to do my own thing. But that's what pride is, and that's what all of us do on a daily basis when we seek to advance our own agenda above the Lord's. You know, it's summer, so we get thunderstorms, and occasionally those bring tornadoes. I'm a particular fan of my home and don't want it to get destroyed. So imagine a storm comes along and a tornado is coming, and I say, "Mm -mm, I am going to make sure that tornado does not harm my home. So I go get the biggest fan that we have, which is a box fan, you know, whopping huge fan. And I go out on my front porch, and I look at the tornado, and I plug it in. And I'm like, ah, tornado, come face the wrath of my fan, you know. No, my fan's not going to compete against a tornado. It's it's foolish. We laugh because it's like, yeah, yeah, good luck with that. You're going to die. But that's, that's what we do when we stand in the way of what God is doing. God is the tornado that brings about what He wants, His path. It, he, he just does it. And we're like, yeah, I got my box fan. I'm going to do what I want. What? But that's what we do. It's foolish. God, in His purposes, says that He will have a people that humbly submit to Him. We see that in Revelation. There'll, there'll, be, a, there'll be a people of God that submit to Him. So He invites us to do that. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter uh, 5, 5 says that, and James 4, 6 as well. They're quoting from Proverbs 3, 34. The proud are opposing God and His ways. So pride is foolish. It's utterly foolish because it seeks to stop the unstoppable. Let's look at our last point for today. Pride leads to death. It leads to death. It's obviously foolish. It obviously doesn't satisfy But we often don't think about how pride actually brings about death. We think, oh, I just got a little bit of pride. 
But God says even your little bit of pride is going to lead to death. So starting in chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. In this, we see Esther masterfully unmasking Haman. She doesn't blame the king. It was the king's decree. It's, it's the king's fault that this is happening too. But she avoids kind of implicating the king, instead kind of piles it all on Haman. It's the third time that the king is asked, and she finally brings, hey, I, the request of, I, I, my head's on the chopping block, as are the, my people. Your queen, O King Ahasuerus, the one that you love, will you rescue me, giving Ahasuerus the opportunity to be the savior? And she points out, it's this guy, Haman, this one who you think, you think is your friend, who you've entrusted with so much, he's undermining your very queen. So let's see what happens. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the, uh, on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told him what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So Haman finally meets his end. He's finally brought low. The only time that Haman shows any sort of humility in the entire book is when he's begging for his life. And that even results in his death. Because the king comes in and misinterprets the situation. Pronounces judgment right then and there. Hang him on that. Again, we see the king kind of listening to the first advice that's given. Hey, there's this gallows that this guy made, and he made it for the guy that saved you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's use that. Kill him. 
So Haman is brought low because of his pride. Everything that Haman has done up to this point has brought about his own downfall. Pride leads to death. If Haman had been content to just receive what King Ahasuerus had given him, to not insist on Mordecai bowing down, to not try to kill God's people, Haman would have been fine. But instead, he wanted more. And he wanted more and more. And so it brings about his death. And that's the trajectory of pride. It's not just towards death, but it brings or results in death. If we're walking in the path of pride, sometimes we think like, oh, you know, I'm just going to walk down this path just a little bit, do my own thing. It's like trying to, it's like a snowball going downhill. It just picks up momentum as it goes, and it comes down to the bottom crashing. The very things that you do that you think are going to lead to satisfaction ultimately bring misery and destruction. I don't have this on the screen, but we see this in Psalm 9:16. The psalmist says, The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. That's the first half. But now here, here kind of how he's doing that in the second half. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. So God is judging the prideful, the wicked. But how does he do it? Oh, he does it through their own behavior. God turns us over to the result of our sins. So the things that you are seeking will actually kill you, whether it is money, sex, influence, or whatever. Those things will bring about your death. Haman's behavior brings about his death. God opposes the proud. Now, we've talked a lot about pride, so let's turn our attention to hope. What is the answer? Humility brings the exaltation that pride can only promise Humility brings the exaltation that, only, that pride can only promise. By exaltation, I don't mean lofty status, but I mean a right ordering of our lives as God's representatives in the world. If I'm submitted to Him and I'm properly being an ambassador for Him, then my life will be ordered in the way that God has intended and designed. Not that I don't have bad things happen to me, but that my life is full and good where I rejoice in the Lord. In the same way that an ambassador submits to the wishes of a president or a king, we must submit to the wishes of God. And it's through, their, through that that our lives become properly ordered. The message of our passage today, as we see the life of Haman and Esther, Mordecai, King Ahasuerus, it's not just stop being prideful. Okay, church, never, I never want you to hear me ever saying, just, well, just stop it. It's not that. It's not stop being prideful. But it's instead this. God loves us enough to warn us about the foolishness of pride. He loves us enough to tell us, to plead with us, to say, hey, come submit. That's the way I designed you to live. Come and submit. He delivers us from our pride through warning us about it. Here's another beautiful truth. As I've reflected on Haman and his life, the truth is, is we are all Haman. We are all trying to set ourselves up as mini-gods in our own kingdoms. We deserve to be lifted on a stake 50 cubits high, humiliated and degraded. There's one person, though, who deserves a kingdom and deserves praise, but was humble and was lifted on a tree, hung on a tree for the death of the prideful. He died in our place 
when we think about Christ, He laid His life down for prideful people, you and me. He didn't wait for us to become humble and then die. He died and then invites us to be humble and submit to His gracious rule and reign. What a beautiful truth that our God would die for us, that Christ lived a perfect life and died on the cross, the death that we deserved for us. He did that for us. And as we read about Esther, we don't just see God's love for His people poured out in His preservation of them, but we see God's love for His people in that He continually warns us through His past workings, He warns us against the path that we want to walk. We want to walk down that path of pride. But He says, no, I love you too much to let you go there. So church, this morning I plead with you, look at your life and see where have I been walking in pride. It's going to be different for each one of us. And I beg of you to humbly submit to the Lord, confess your sin, and walk with Him. Okay, real quick, I want to leave you with four things that you can do to actually grow in humility, just practically speaking. First one, and and these are kind of related to what I spoke on earlier. First one, come under authority. Whether that's joining a church and inviting correction or reading the Word or being faithful to be under authority. Secondly, look to serve and praise others. Instead of looking to get and be served and be praised, look to serve and praise others. Try to find the job in the church or in our community that receives no praise and that needs to be done. Say, I'll do it. And also, you know, sometimes you see people around you and you're like, I don't want to praise them. You know, Well, seek to be an encourager. I won't name this individual in particular, but I was really impressed on Wednesday night, one of our elders uh, was just interacting with somebody and just naturally was speaking words of encouragement. And I was like, that's humble right there. It's building somebody else up. Be an encourager of the people around you, whether you think they deserve it or not. Sometimes that's what they need is to hear that somebody sees how God is moving in their life. So look to serve. Second, or thirdly, receive your circumstances and trials as opportunities to submit to, to and trust God. See them as opportunities. Oh goodness, our van may be on the fritz. Okay, Lord, this is a chance to trust you. And yeah, it stinks and we live in a sinful world where things wear out. But Lord, we trust you. And then lastly, meditate on how submission to God makes you more into who you, into who you were designed to be, not less. See, we think if I do what I want, I become who I want to be and who I'm supposed to be. But instead, it's submission to God that actually makes us into who we ought to be. All right, big idea for today. I kind of hinted at it and said it a little bit earlier. You got it in your worship order. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What a beautiful truth that we can submit to Him and find grace in our hours of need. Church pride won't satisfy. It's foolish. It leads to death. Let's humbly submit to the one whom we were meant to submit to. Let me pray. Father, we praise your name. We thank you that you are worthy of our praise and worship and that we are not. Help us to humbly submit to you and to not walk the path of pride. But may we long for your ways and your words. May we see them as good. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.